All right, good morning and welcome back. A special welcome to those of you joining us online this morning. We're grateful you're here with us. Uh, grateful for those of you who are here with us in the room as well. Please get your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation as we will be uh, closing the first chapter this morning. We have uh, on the table behind the pole there some uh, new Bibles for you. Um, so if you need a Bible, please feel free to grab one there to use. You can take it with you if you like. So chapter 1, we are going to be doing verses 12 through 20, but we're going to get a running start and go back to verse 9 and begin reading this morning. So let's read beginning in verse 9. We'll have that on the screen for you as well if you need to follow along that way. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation, And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud uh, voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Lord, as always, we look to you to be our teacher, to be our guide, to be the one who speaks to our hearts this morning. May you increase and may we decrease as you introduce yourself to us this morning in a dramatic way in a sovereign way. Lord, in a way that I, I hope and pray for all of us, myself included, will inspire faith and hope and trust in who you are. So Lord, speak to us this morning. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've called this message that Jesus introduces himself. 
Jesus introduces himself because nowhere else in the scriptures do we have as complete a picture of Jesus than we do here. Yes, the gospels tell a story, but God introduces his son here with this description. And so as we look at it this morning, we will be looking at, as usual, the connections to the Old Testament. We will be looking at what Jesus had to say about himself, how he introduced himself to John. Of course, he needed no introduction to John, but remember when Jesus came the first time, he came as a baby, he came as a human being. But this time, He's revealing himself to the world in all his glory and his resurrection glory and his kingly glory as the one who has conquered, who has finished his race. And so as he presents himself this morning, I pray that we will be open to seeing him as he truly is, as he reveals himself to us. So in verse 11, as John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, just in a spiritual state, just resting and waiting upon the Lord. He says he heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And so Jesus describes himself as the beginning and the end. He is the the consummation of all things. And when he says the first and the last in the Bible, when we go to Genesis 1-1, What does it say? It says, in the beginning, God. And the word or the name used for God there is plural. So Jesus is saying, I am the first, I'm the beginning. And with your finger here, if you want to turn over to Revelation 22 for a moment. In Revelation 22, verse uh, 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. So Jesus has the last word in the book. I am the first and I am the last. And then John here in in verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he turned to see who it was who was speaking to him, knowing full well it was Jesus. And what he saw when he turned around, and as he heard this voice that sounded like a trumpet that was just shouting out, he saw instead seven golden lampstands. And so here's here's John after all these years, probably some 60, 65 years since he last saw Jesus with his own eyes, turning and seeing now Jesus reveal himself in this way. In this way. And remember, probably the most fond memory that John had of Jesus is that he always called himself in his gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he also, uh, at the Last Supper, remember he was right beside Jesus. <clears throat> And that table that they sat at was called a triclinium. The table's about, oh, 18 inches or so high. And it's a U-shaped table. And rather than having chairs, they really had, <clears throat> had pillows. And they would really lean back on one arm, sort of almost laying down at the table eating. So leaning on one arm and kind of feeding themselves with the other. And they were uh, around that table, basically <clears throat> face to back, face to back. And so... 
at position number one was Judas, at position number two was Jesus, and at position number three was John. And John describes in his gospel saying that he leaned back on Jesus' breast, on his chest, put his head there and sort of looked up to him and said, Lord, who is it? When he said someone would betray him. So John certainly had this close and this intimate relationship with Jesus. And so now as he turns to see him after all these years, he sees this voice being revealed in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. And these lampstands, it's interesting as you read about this and study it, that people, it seems that commentators are divided. Were these actually menorahs, as in the temple, or were these just lampstands, just sort of plain traditional lampstands? Um, I tend to believe that these were more like the menorah that was in the temple, that was in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Uh, Either way, they were a device that had oil in them, And that had a wick in it, and that wick would be lit with a flame. And the the flame, of course, would give the light. Uh, In the case of the temple, it would be the light of God. And remember when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was referring back to uh, the the, uh, menorah there in the temple. It's interesting, one person sort of observed this about the whole situation. He said, the light doesn't come from the lamp stands. The light comes from the oil lamps themselves. The stands merely make the light more visible. Therefore, the lamp stands are a good picture of the church. We don't produce the light. We simply display the light. And we're told that these lamp stands, as we read on, are sort of the church, it's the presence of these churches. And Jesus, we're told, is standing in the midst of these lampstands. And so Jesus, as he is standing there, this reveals to us the idea, the picture, that Jesus is standing in the midst of his church, that Jesus is standing in the midst of his churches, plural, but standing in the midst of his church, singular as well. So wherever there are two or three gathered in the name of Jesus, Jesus is there in their presence. You know, if he weren't here with us, if I didn't believe that he was meeting with us every time we met, then I would say to you, why would we meet? Why do we ever meet if we don't expect Jesus to be present? It's just another intellectual pursuit. It's just, we might as well be reading a secular book about self-help and self-preservation and how to become healthier people. Instead, we're reading the living, active Word of God and, and God Himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is there manifesting Himself in the midst of the presence of His people as they meet together. And remember the Scriptures say where two or three have gathered, hey, you know what? You can sit down with anybody and pray. And as long as there's two of you, you've met the minimum requirement for Jesus. And he's there with you. You don't have to be in the the midst of thousands of people. It can just be two of you. And God is willing to reveal his presence to two just as much as he's willing to reveal his presence to hundreds or even thousands. 
There's a beautiful picture I'm going to commend to you to read on your own. It's in Zechariah chapter 4. And the picture is the vision of a golden lampstand. And as you read that picture, you, you get the sense that God is just revealing himself. That's that famous passage, by the way, <clears throat> that says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So that is a picture of God meeting with his priest in his temple. And he reveals himself in a powerful way. And he, he lets the priest of the temple know It's not your efforts, it's not your good deeds, it's not your hard work. You're just there as a servant, you're just there as a vessel. You're a pass-through for me, you're a conduit of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's word to those people whom you serve. And I find it interesting that Jesus would take this idea out of the Jewish temple and now apply it to the church and say, Jesus is now in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of his churches. And he's there meeting with them. It's interesting that one of the duties of the Old Testament priest was to tend the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. Every day they had to fill the oil. They had to clean the soot and trim back the wicks. They had to closely inspect and care for the lamps so that they would burn continually before the presence of the Lord. And here we have Jesus, our high priest, in the midst of the seven lampstands, carefully inspecting and caring for the lamps, helping them to always burn brightly before the Lord. So Jesus here, referring to himself, as the Son of Man and the Son of God. Remember in Daniel's story, in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow the knee before King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember he got so angry that he threw them into the fiery furnace. And it says in Daniel 3.24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loosed walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. He was visiting those young Jewish boys as they took a stand for truth, as they took a stand for the truth of God's word. Also a little further in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had gotten this vision. And in Daniel seven thirteen, it says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God the Father. And they brought him near before him, that is, they brought Jesus near before the Father. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." 
You see, the picture we are being given of Jesus, these elements of his character and how he appears, his nature, these will be used in the letters to the seven churches. In fact, Jesus himself, as he writes those letters to those churches, addresses certain deficiencies in those churches through some of the qualities he calls out here in chapter 1. So it's important for us to understand this and to see this. We are also told here that he is clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. You see, this is a picture. It's a word picture of the Old Testament priest. He is arrayed for his priestly duties. And remember the book of Hebrews, among many scriptures, tell us this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Our high priest is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God, and we're going to continue to get a picture of him. By the time we get to chapters 4 and 5, we are going to see Jesus in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, in the throne room of God. But as the description continues here, because remember, Jesus told John to write these things down. In verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. So John is reaching like and as, like and as, trying to find ways to describe Jesus, to describe what he's seeing. This man, Jesus, the God-man Jesus, now he sees him walking in the midst of the lampstands. And when it says that his hair... Uh, head and hair were white like wool. Again, we just read this, uh, I think, in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, but to uh, repeat it, Daniel 7, 9. Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Now, it makes sense if God the Father looked like that, that the Son would look in a similar manner, wouldn't he? In their heavenly estate. So this description that we see of Jesus in Revelation 1 matches the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 so many years before John was given this vision. And we are reminded as we read these things that Jesus is eternal. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word never changes. He never changes. We need to cling to him because, you see, he will outlast everyone and everything. Don't fall prey to the world and the world's message which says Jesus is outdated. He's no longer relevant. This is old school thinking. And they find different ways to describe who Jesus is. But so many people, we're going to find out in a minute as John goes on, when he met Jesus, when he saw him, he was changed in his presence. Keep your finger here where we are in Revelation and turn back a couple of pages to 1 John chapter 3. This is one of my favorite 
verses. First John chapter three, verse one, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but when, but we know, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you understand in that moment when you and I see Jesus, this is what's going to happen for us. This is what's going to happen to us. You know, in in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about a description that Paul gave of Jesus, how he was a man who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. And then it later says uh, in in several places, but most notably in Romans chapter 8, that we are being conformed into his image as the part of the progressive sanctifying work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God working in our lives. But when we see him, the transformation will become complete. And that instant in the twinkling of an eye, we shall become like him. We shall be his children. You know how it is when we see families with kids and kids so often look like one of the parents or a combination of the parents. When we see Jesus in heaven, we're going to see that Jesus resembles God the Father. We'll see God the Father sitting on the throne and we'll see Jesus there at the right hand. And we'll look at the two of them and go, wow, that's amazing. And somehow we'll see or sense or feel the Holy Spirit. I don't know how it's going to work. But in that moment, as we see him and then we are his offspring, we are his spiritually adopted children. We have been grafted into Israel. We've been grafted into Christ. In that moment, you and I are going to become like him. Because the Bible says all the way back in Genesis that we are made how? In the image of God. So in that moment we are going to become like him. And then the next quality that John sees, he says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. The eyes of fire. Fire, we know, burns away, draws, it purifies, it gets rid of the impurities. And I love those songs we sing, Refiner's Fire, Holy Fire, Burn Away, Everything That's Not of Me and... Uh, not of you and is of me, burn it, burn it away, Lord. And Jesus' eyes, when we see him on that day, his eyes of fire will purify our lives. And don't we long for that even now? I do, I need it, you need it. It's almost impossible, is it not, to walk through this world and not get dirty? And so often when I sit down and I open God's word and I read it, I'm just like, sometimes I'm just undone. I'm just like, God, I don't know about you. Some days I feel like I'm just making no progress because of the dirtiness of the world. But he, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He has a searching and a penetrating gaze. His hair like white wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of many waters. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls here, by the way? Or somewhere like that? 
And in, next time you're near that kind of a roar, maybe it's an ocean during the storm or whatever, and you're hearing that roar of the water, and just remember this, call this to mind, his voice, like the, the sound of many waters. His right hand, he held the seven stars. If Jesus in his right hand, this hand, can hold the seven stars. Well, my Bible was in this hand, sorry. But it's your right, my left is your right. So you get the point, right? So my right, you'll hit. How about this? Is this okay? Jesus in his hand holds the seven stars. The, I mean, I didn't, there's so much here. I couldn't even look it all up. You know, in the Old Testament, it says that he holds the worlds. He holds the universe in the span of his hand. We study these things. <clears throat> Scientists study these things and they go, the universe is like 18 billion trillion light years across as far as we can estimate. I don't know if that's true. It's big. And yet God holds it all in his hand. Can he not be trusted? Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His face is shining like the sun. One commentator says, this is no ordinary look at the man we know from the gospel. To say that his appearance is unique is also an understatement. It is supernatural. It is glorious in its description. And it points us to the majesty, the purity, and the authority of the one being described. This is the glorified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the coming King. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3... It tells us of this idea of how we live our lives. It says, if any man builds on the foundation, that is Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So on that day when we stand before him and those penetrating eyes of fire Look at us, everything that's dross and everything that's chaff. You understand what dross and chaff is, right? In the world of metalworking, it's the impurities that float to the top when you heat the metal to a certain temperature. And the people working with the metal then take something sort of like a skimmer and they just take all the dross off, all the impurities, and they skim it off and they put it away. So that now what they're working with, what they're molding and shaping can be pure. And the chaff are the husks, the unusable, uneatable part of the grain. It protects the grain while it's growing, but when it's time to harvest, the, the husk or the chaff has to be taken off and discarded. And basically, the practice has always been that the chaff will be taken away and it would be burned. And so each man's work will be evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. In other words, when Jesus looks at our lives and when he looks at what we've done and how we've lived, I think we're going to be sad and glad that his flaming eyes of fire have burned away all the stuff that doesn't matter. That's the good part. The sad part is, it's probably going to be a lot. Right? But we don't want to be there, do we? His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. You know, brass 
in the Old Testament was always connected with judgment. Remember the, the bronze or the brazen laver? That was where they, they took things and often the burnt offerings were offered. Brass is connected with judgment and sacrifice. Brass is also a strong metal in the Old Testament. It was the strongest metal known to man. And when it says that his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, you get the idea here that Jesus' feet, through the picture, are feet that have been refined. They've been burned in the furnace, but not scorched. They've been burned in such a way as to bring purity. And remember this, as we think about this picture of Jesus, we are told in the book of Corinthians, looking back at the cross, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, right? We know that on the cross that the wrath of God was poured out on a sinful, unbelieving world. It was poured out on sin. Sin was judged that day on the cross. The sin of all of us, you and me, was laid on Jesus. And yet God burned it away. The chaff is gone. The metal is refined. His feet were like fine brass. This is all a picture to us that's to both be terrifying and comforting all at the same time. Terrifying is that, in that we're seeing Jesus as he truly is, but comforting in that we know that he took care of everything. The picture we have of Jesus is a picture of salvation completed. It's a picture that, man, you and I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Everything's taken away. All that's not good is gone. All that's good remains. And all of the lack that we have, he gives to us and completes us. His feet, fine brass, voice, the sound of many waters. I think as Christians, one of the things we struggle with the most is hearing the voice of God, is it not? Probably the most common thing I hear from people, and I've heard for many years, is how do you hear the voice of God? I, I don't know if I hear it. Well, let me start with the most obvious thing. This is the voice of God, His Word. So I would say to you very simply in a non-condemnatory way or anything like that, but just to encourage you, if you're not already reading this book, to read it. Because if you want to hear the voice of God, and I believe that you do, I believe that all of us as believers want to hear the voice of God. The only way I know to hear the voice of God is not to go to the top of a mountain and sit and cross your knees and kind of go, hmm, it's not that. It's opening this book and saying, Lord, speak to me. I want to take a minute to go through this. Some of the ways that God has revealed himself in Scripture. And, and uh, we'd be here all day and tomorrow and the next day if we were going to go through this in a comprehensive way. His voice is the sound of many waters. He's, John's hearing the voice of God, the voice of Jesus. Later in Revelation chapter 14, we're going to hear this. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. People reject that. They're like, what are you talking about? Harps? Who listens to harps? That's some instrument that sits buried in the back of an orchestra that nobody cares about. But it's going to be an instrument of praise in heaven. 
Revelation 19.6, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters. So now as you read Revelation 19, it's like the people of God are taking on the characteristics of a God they worship. We're hearing the description that his voice is the sound of many waters. Now we hear, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The voice of God speaking through his people. Ezekiel 43 says, The voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. Sorry, I'm reading Revelation 19. Wrong verse. Ezekiel 43, 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Even Ezekiel in the Old Testament heard the voice of God is the voice of many waters. And this is just describing to us that God's voice is a thundering voice. It is an unmistakable voice. Psalm 93 tells us, The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, the mighty waves of the sea. Not just that his voice sounds like that, but the sound of the roar of those waters helps us understand that God is mightier than those waters. Ezekiel in chapter 1, he gets this vision of the Lord, another good place to go and read later, write that down, Ezekiel chapter 1. But in Ezekiel one twenty four, Ezekiel's describing this situation as he's before God and he hears God speaking. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. And it goes on to describe this picture of Jesus. Psalm 29, one of my most favorite psalms. I'd like for you to turn there, Psalm 29. This is why we need to go to God's word, to hear his voice. Psalm 29, a psalm of David, given to the Lord, O you mighty ones, given to the Lord glory and strength, given to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in beauty of holiness. Now, one, two, three, four, five, six times here, he's going to talk about the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. And the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Whenever I'm struggling to hear God's voice, I do turn to Psalm 29. And remind myself that when I'm anywhere, the ocean or rivers or whatever, and I hear that sound of the mighty rushing water, I remember that reminds me 
that God's voice is over the waters. When you hear these loud things like a storm coming through and breaking trees, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. The Lord, voice of the Lord divides the flame of fire. You have a fire pit in your backyard. Have you ever gone camping? You just kind of sit around a campfire and you see those flames of fire. And you see those tongues, the dividing of the flames. Do you know what's causing the dividing of the flames? It's not physics. It's the voice of the Lord. Dividing the flame. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Earthquakes. Think earthquakes are random things? Tetonic plagues shifting? It's the voice of the Lord. You see, we want to hear... God's voice. And you remember that beautiful story found in 1 Samuel 3. And it came to pass at that time that while Eli was lying down in his palace, excuse me, his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow old and dim so that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called to Samuel and he answered, here I am. So he ran to Eli thinking it was Eli And he said, here I am for you called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Go lie down again, child. What's going on with you? And he went and he lay down. And then the Lord called again, yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli. And he said, here I am for you called me. And he answered and said, I did not call you, son. Lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. So this was Samuel's introduction to the Lord. And the Lord called again to Samuel the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and he said, here I am for you did call me. I'm not crazy. I know I heard a voice. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And it shall be if he calls you that you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and the Lord answered, speak for your servant hears. Now this is just a story in the Old Testament. But I believe because these things are written for our instruction, I believe the Lord wants to speak to us. And I believe that he will, if you listen, I believe he will call your name. And I believe he has a word for you, not just a word once for life, but he wants to speak to you every day. And I know that at times in my life, in my thoughts or audibly, I don't know, I could swear that I've heard him call my name. And you stop in that moment and you say, okay, Lord, I'm here, I'm listening. And I love what Samuel said here, uh, He says, speak for your servant hears. If this is your attitude and your approach to God, if we can go beyond just, God, I got this big issue and I need your answer by Tuesday at five, you know, and it would be great if you could show up and, you know, just send me a mail. That would be great. A little text. But God, he wants to speak. Are we listening? He had in his right hand, verse 16, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Jesus holding 
the church in his hand. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. We know that the stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. Most people, most commentators believe that these messengers are not just that each church has a divine angel watching over them. Almost nobody believes that. But what they do believe is because the word angel means messenger, that this is Jesus' word to those who are shepherding, shepherding and caring for his flock as well as a message to the flock itself. So here, if the, if the messengers, or if you will, the pastors, or those serving over the churches or ministering to the churches are the ones he has in mind, then these seven letters we're about to dive into are his message to those messengers of how he wants his church to be treated, of how he wants them to be instructed. And for us as a congregation, for any congregation, for any church, for any people reading it who are a part of the church, this is how we are to receive and respond to the word of God. So it's going to be very important for us as we go through these seven letters to be open to what the Lord has to speak to you and me. Each letter has things that are personal, that are congregational, that are commendations, that are corrections, that are encouragements. And we want to consider these things on all levels and from all angles to make sure we understand and we receive from the hand of the Lord. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword A number of times, especially in the New Testament, the idea or the mention of a sword comes into play. But there were two kinds of swords that were spoken of. There was a short sword called a machaira that was roughly 18 inches long. It's the sword that's described in Ephesians chapter 6 when it talks about the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That sword is meant for that close-in battle. It's not that big long sword that you might see, for example, in the Lord of the Rings or some King Arthur movie where they have these giant long swords that are five or six feet long. Those are meant for a different aspect of battle. But in the close-in hand-to-hand combat situations, the Machaira is the sword. And so here in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that's the short sword. The sword that he's speaking of here, that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, is the long sword. And that's called the Romphaea. And that sword would have, again, been five or six feet long. So when, uh, in Hebrews 4, we see the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, that is the Machaira, the short sword. But here, this long sword is also called the broad sword. It's usually worn over the right shoulder and is worn down the back because of its length. And so that's that long sword you see they reach behind and grab. That's this kind of a sword. This sword was weighty. It was balanced. And the blade is so sharp, it's reported that if someone in battle took that blade and hit a man on the top of the head, that it could split him in two. This is the sword that Jesus 
has, the sword that comes out of his mouth, it's the big sword. It's the big guns, so to speak. No one is the picture. No one can stand against the word of Jesus. In fact, we're told in Isaiah chapter 11, but with, the right, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 speaking of the Antichrist says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. So you get the idea that when Jesus judges unrighteousness, when Jesus speaks to those people who rejected him and who would not turn to him, who would not believe in him, his word will be final and there will be no turning back. And we are told that his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Remember on the day of the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus went up there and he took Peter, James, and John with him. And we're told in Matthew 17, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. That in that moment, that was a picture, that was a glimpse, that was a foretaste of what they would see one day when they saw Jesus face to face. And here is John seeing Jesus with his countenance like the sun shining in his strength. I'm sure he must have immediately gone back in his mind to that day thinking, man, that was nothing compared to this, compared to what I'm seeing here today. There's this interesting verse in Malachi chapter 4 that says, but to you who fear my name, and this is capitalized, by the way, the son, S-U-N, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So you get a picture of Jesus in all of his glory. Something I want to point out to you this morning is that this is the only physical description we have been given of Jesus in the Bible is right here where he reveals himself, he describes himself. Now, in the Gospels, we learn about his character and nature, but no one in the Gospels actually gives you a description. You know, like a, when something happens, you're, you're robbed or you're mugged and someone's running away and the police come and they say, well, can you describe him? Well, he was about six feet tall and here's the color of his skin and here's his hair and blah, blah, blah. And he was wearing this and he had a tattoo on his left arm. With Jesus, he gives us a description of himself, but the description that he's given of himself here in Revelation chapter one is a description that's found nowhere else in, in scripture. He's describing himself to John, or he's allowing himself to be observed by John, and so that it can be written down for our instruction. The only other place that we see an attempt at a description being given is when God himself gave to Isaiah a picture in Isaiah 53. And as you read that, you you get a sense of who Jesus is, who the Messiah would be. But in Isaiah 53 too, it says... He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's the description of Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at the description of Jesus in the New Testament. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, this is the guy who leaned back on Jesus' breast at the dinner table 
This was the guy who's like, man, I'm the one who Jesus loves. This is awesome. But now he sees Jesus and he's like, I'm undone. This is just like what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah was being allowed to see into the throne room of heaven. And he said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, that's the the true response of someone who is in the presence of the holiness of God, when we see it, when we understand it, when we sense it, when we feel it, when we realize it, that's the only response. And John's like, I I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Look at the grace, look at the picture that we're being given of Jesus. He laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Do you understand that the right hand of God is a place of power? Exodus 15, 6. This is when God's giving everything to Moses, right? The the law and and whatnot. Your right hand, O Lord, Exodus 15, 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Now, you can go through and do a search on right hand, and it's so many that it's just crazy. Here's a few. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, Lord. Your right hand has held me up, Isaiah 18. Isaiah 48, your right hand is full of righteousness. Isaiah 98, his right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Isaiah 41, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 48, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. In Hebrews chapter 10, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And this is the hand that he touched John with. And he said, hey, man, don't worry, don't be afraid. As I was thinking about this yesterday and just praying through it, all of a sudden this old hymn came to mind. I thought it was an old hymn, been around hundreds of years. It was actually one written by Bill Gaither, so not too long ago by our standards. The hymn is called, He Touched Me. And here's a couple of the phrases. Shackled by a heavy burden beneath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. The touch of Jesus. Jesus touched John. And he says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Jesus' touch in John's life removed all fear. Most of us live with some form of fear, do we not? Always. People fearing what other people think, what might happen if I do this or that. We're afraid of risk. We're afraid of, you know, breaking out of the norm. We're, you know, we're afraid of, you know, the other day I almost died on the highway. Now you want to talk about it. Friday coming home, it was ridiculous. And uh, it was one of those, you get out of the car shaking and you get down and kiss the ground. It was one of those experiences coming home in traffic on Friday. It was ridiculous. But when we understand who holds our lives, 
I mean, I don't even know how many times I just said, thank you, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, after that experience. John was touched by Jesus. In verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. I mean, that's a set of keys I don't want. Jesus has the keys. The keys represent authority and sovereignty and power. You know, in the book of Philippians, I referenced this earlier. Listen to the description of Jesus in his first coming. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man or of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we see I am he who lives, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. He's alive, he's not dead, he's not in the grave. He has authority over death. Read 1 Corinthians 15, there's your third assignment for today. You've got plenty to do this week. He has authority over life, he has authority over all things. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shares in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus' resurrection destroyed the devil. It gave him victory over the devil. And I understand this, Satan is not Jesus' equal. He's not, as I forget, as the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who said he's the brother of Lucifer. He's not. Lucifer was an angel, and angels are created beings to serve God, to serve his purposes. Jesus is the Son of God. They're not at all equal. They're not at all the same. In fact, one commentator said this, and I love this. Jesus is the one who has the keys of Hades and death. Some imagine that the devil is somehow the Lord of hell. Some imagine that the devil has authority or power to determine life or death. Clearly, they are wrong. For only Jesus holds the keys of Hades and of death. And we can trust that Jesus never lets the devil borrow the keys. Jesus has the keys of Hades and of death. And then verse 19, the divine outlook for the book of Outlook, the divine outline for the book of Revelation Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. We've already talked about the fact that in the beginning here of this book, he promised a blessing to any who would read it. And remember last week, we took a short look at all those different, four different approaches to the book of Revelation and, you know, that commentators or, or people use to, to approach or to interpret the scriptures, especially the book of Revelation. And we looked at the fact that 
God said, I promise a blessing, right? To anyone who would read this book and to, to keep it, right? Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. If God is promising a blessing to those who would read it, then does it make any sense whatsoever that he would make it so difficult that we can't understand it? Does it mean that we shouldn't read it? Does it mean that it's unknowable? We've already talked about the fact that some believe that the book of Revelation is a closed book and you shouldn't read it. I believe God is saying, if you'll read it, I will bless you. If you'll read it, I will give you understanding. And here he says in verse 19, John, write the things which you have seen, which is chapter one. It's this this revelation, this unveiling of Jesus himself. Jesus introduces himself to John, to the church, and to the world in such a way that is so dramatic. When, when you go back later and you read chapter 1, especially verses you know, 11 through 20 here, you see this picture that Jesus gives of himself. And I hope that it's been making sense to you today and making an impact that he is amazing. There's no one like him. Write the things which you have seen, this vision of Jesus. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the picture of the church before Jesus comes back for his church. And then he says, write the things which will take place after this, which we believe is chapters 4 through 22. Chapter 4 and 5 is a picture of the church in heaven. It's a picture of what the throne room of God looks like. Beginning with chapter 6 through chapter 19, you're going to see the wrath of God poured out on a sinful and an unbelieving world. And then in those last few chapters, 20, 21, and 22, you're going to see these amazing things that God's going to do. You're going to see the future. That's our future. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. You see, God intended for this book to be understood. He intended for this book to bring a promise of a blessing to those who would read it. The seven churches, he's already mentioned them, but we'll start next week with the book, or rather the letter to the church at Ephesus. I think it's also interesting to note, in case you didn't know this, that Paul, the apostle, wrote letters to seven churches. He wrote letters to Rome, to Corinth, to Galatia, to Ephesus, to Colossae, to Philippi, and to Thessalonica. Paul wrote to seven churches. John's being told to write to seven churches. You see, John is being given this picture of Jesus to pass along to us so that we might see him as he truly is. One person said, when you have assurance for the future, you have stability in the present. The book of Revelation is to provide us that stability. No matter what's going on in your life and my life, or what comes, come what may, this is real, this is true. Every word, every jot, every tittle. Not one iota will be unfulfilled. One person said, God gave us his revelation for our understanding, 
for our obedience, for our warning, and for our encouragement. So I pray that as we get into the letters next week, that you will be encouraged. I pray that you'll, sit, you'll read ahead. Just put, put a bookmark here. Read as far as you can. When you get to the end of Revelation, go back to chapter 1 and do it again. And I believe if you do that two, three, four, five, ten times over the course of this study, you're going to be blessed. Your, things are going to begin to make sense to you. Especially as we go through it and we study it together. And given what he said here... If I'm like one of those people, he's holding in his hand the messengers of the church and knowing the message he gives to these churches here in two and three and knowing that there's some element, some aspect of that that applies to me and that applies to us. When you read these things, if it doesn't make, it's going to cause me to do one of two things. I'm just speaking for myself personally, either Either I need to get more passionate and serious or I need to quit and walk away. And I don't really like the second option. And this is, this is what God's word should do. It should have an effect on us. John saw Jesus. John was touched by Jesus. And, and this picture, you know, we weren't there with John, but John wants us to be there. Can you get that sense as he writes us? He wants you and me to feel like we were there when he saw this and when he experienced it. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit saying to us, listen, I want you to have that same vision, that same picture of Jesus. And just as John was touched and as he fell down as dead and just as Jesus with that amazing righteous right hand touched John, It said, don't fear, get up. So he would say to you and me today, as we've been introduced to Jesus as he truly is, get up, rise up, serve him, love him. Why? Because he first loved you. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for speaking. Lord, we bless you. We love you. And may these things, may your word run swiftly in my heart, in our hearts. God, may we be open to the things that you have for us. May we, your church, be on the right side of these things. May we receive and believe, believe and understand. And God, may we respond righteously to your word and to your truth. Lord, help us to get our eyes off of the junk, off the wind and the wave and the world, to get our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. God, help us with these things. God, be merciful to me, to us as sinners. And help us, God, help us to fall at your feet as dead to love you, Lord, to love you more than the things of this world. Lord, bear in our lives 30, 60, and 100 fold. We don't want to be that third soil choked out by the worries and the cares of the world. Lord, have your way in me and in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.